And now, with sound investing, here's Paul Merriman. I've got a handful of topics I'd like to uh, discuss today, including rebalancing, a little bit on uh, on the Motif uh, uh, program, and talk a little bit about the, uh, the the huge amount of money that's now in the S&P 500 and compare that to the uh, small cap value. I've had some questions about that. But I'd like to start with uh, an article out of the AARP uh, magazine. Um, I always go through it. I will find a couple of articles about non-financial things I'll take a look at, but always appreciate uh, the financial uh, topics. This particular uh, topic is entitled, or article is entitled, What to Expect in Your 70s and Beyond. And this is in the uh, issue that uh, came out in July. A picture of Steve Martin looking like he's about 50 years old on the front cover. Um, I I won't talk about it, but uh, I did see an article, read an article entitled, Warning, Trapped in a Timeshare. And uh, the way that people who are wanting to get out of timeshares are being scammed of uh, millions and millions of dollars. But the the article that got my attention that I found fun was what to expect in your 70s and beyond. And they talk about lifestyle and family relationships. Of course, I'm always interested in the numbers that have to do with where people are financially. I thought I would share a little information here. Uh, Talking about people in their 70s, they may have a net worth of $597,000 or more. About half uh, have retirement savings. Uh, They've paid off their mortgage, and uh, they've socked away. They have savings of about $148,000. That does not sound like enough to uh, ward off any serious financial problems, but uh, uh, they also have uh, Social Security, of course. Uh, About one in five in their early 70s have more than a half a million uh, squirreled away, they say. Those in the top 10% have over a million. And... uh, I suspect I never, when I see that number, I am always reminded of the comments amongst people back in the in the 70s, actually in the 60s when I started in this industry, and how many people had a longing to someday have a million dollars, and that still seems to be a major breakpoint, even though inflation-adjusted the number today should be more like five or, or six million dollars. In the late 70s, over half of retirees uh, have a pension. And of course, when I'm talking to young people today, I make the point you just can't count on that uh, anymore. Um, there's also, uh, I thought was an interesting number that 65% by the time you reach age 70 can live wherever you want. 
no longer constrained by family obligations or the need to be close to a long-held job. Now, what's interesting about that is we often hear how many people have virtually nothing, and here's a fairly large percentage of uh, people in their 70s uh, who can afford to live wherever they want. It doesn't say how high you're going to live, but uh, at, at, at least uh, uh, you'll be able to have a house almost anywhere in the country, the suggestion is there, and, uh, and 72% of those people have paid off their mortgage. Uh, I've always found that one of the, the most uh, uh, calming and peaceful financial positions uh, for people in retirement is to have that mortgage paid off. Uh, also, it's interesting to note that most of us are still paying bills the old-fashioned way. 77% write checks uh, versus 55% of people who are in their 40s. And uh, only 2% of people in their 70s do their banking by clicking on a mobile app. Um, of course, there again, that's way different than uh, than the young folks. Uh, they're in a whole different world, it seems. Uh, 68% of those in their 70s pay off their credit card balances in full uh, every month. It does seem, according to this article, that after having been pretty stingy with toys and games and other things for grandkids, that uh, as people are entering into their 80s, late late 70s, they start uh, spending more money, including including paying for private education uh, for for grandchildren. There are still a lot of people who are working. 18% of 70 to 74-year-olds are still working. 12% of people 75 to 80 uh, are working at least part-time. And uh, this is one of the things I tell young people is that uh, if you really want to try to retire at a young age, given that we're we don't have pensions. Uh, most of the young people don't and probably won't. And Social Security, the payout is in question. Uh, they're going to start saving uh, early and often in order to prepare for an early retirement if that's what they want in their life. Uh, the, the saying is, is that 80 is the new 60 in terms of working for young people. Let me move on to... Uh, um, a topic that for those of you who like numbers and uh, colorful graphs, uh, we've we've uh, I found some new information on those wonderful Callan periodic tables that we've shown in the past that compare the returns of uh, of the major U.S. and international indexes year by year and. I, th I think we released the 1997 to 2016 earlier this year, but I found a, a part on the Callan uh, uh, website where uh, they disclose a number of other periodic tables. And I'm looking at one right here, and we'll have a, uh, uh, a link to 
these tables um, uh, under the description of this podcast if you want to go back and check that out. But this particular table I'm looking at is the Callan Periodic Table of U.S. Equity Investment Returns. No international. And it is. I think it's fascinating because most of you have most of your money uh, in U.S. equities. And it's the market that you know the best. And, of course, we hear so often that uh, the big winner is going to be the S&P 500 uh, over time. When you look at these numbers and you look at uh, all of the other equity asset classes that you might uh, put money into, whether it's uh, small cap or mid cap or value or growth, uh, there are a, a bunch of these asset classes that are all U.S. equity. They're all asset classes that could potentially be in a portfolio. But let me just focus on the S&P 500 uh, for a second and note that from 1997 to 2016, in 11 years... They were in the bottom, the S&P 500 was in the bottom too. They were uh, amongst the two worst asset classes for 11 out of 20 years. And uh, there were five years where they were in the top two. So that famous index that people so trusted uh, back in the, in the 90s, um, has has now become an asset class that uh, has certainly not been as productive as it had been previously. Isn't that the way it seems to happen? About the time we find out how wonderful something is, uh, it starts to produce a mediocre return. It is interesting to note that when you talk about 97 through 2016, it means you're coming at the beginning of the period, right into that wonderful period where the S&P 500 from 95 to 99 compounded at 28%. So it won't surprise you to find out that 97 and 98, the S&P 500 was number one of all of these U.S. equity uh, asset classes. By the way, uh, 1998... While the S&P 500 was up over 28% for that one year alone, the Russell 2000 was down 2.6. So the and, and the and the small cap, the S&P 600 small cap index down 1.3. The Russell mid cap was up 10. So the S&P 500 looked like an absolute money machine. Now, what happened then from 2000 through 2004 was the S&P 500, four out of those five years, the worst, minus nine, minus 22, uh, up 28, up 11, but even being up 28 and up 11, couldn't get them out of the uh, the bottom of this uh, of this uh, of this graph, and in that one year, 
that uh, they weren't uh, the worst. They were second from the worst in uh, 2001 when they lost 11%. And if you looked, and I hope you will, take a look at this table, you will realize that being in the S&P 500 is not necessarily going to be uh, a, a kind of a free ride. Now, when I say that, you may believe in the long run it's going to be just fine, and we never know. We can't know. But the reality is that a lot of people, if they had all of their money in the S&P 500, let's say starting in 2000, which would have been an easy thing to do, that you would have spent, you would have spent starting in 2000, 11 of uh, the, the, the following 17 years uh, in either the very bottom uh, box or next to the bottom. Now, compare that uh, to the uh, Russell 2000. That's a small cap index. It's not the smallest small cap, but it's a relatively small cap. And in seven years over this 20-year period, uh, they were either number one or number two. And in seven years, uh, they were either last or next to last. So they, too, uh, did, in fact, uh, uh, spend some, some time at the, uh, uh, at the bottom of the list, but not nearly uh, as, as, as bad as the S&P 500 uh, during this particular 20-year period. Now, I think those that, that now I'm going to talk about rebalancing in a second, but for somebody who wanted to get kind of a, a feel for what it might be like if you own two different funds, let's say the S&P 500 and a small cap, and you look at 97 and 98, there's the S&P right at the top. Those same two years, the Russell 2000, right at the bottom. And then the Russell 2000 pops up and is number two in 1999. The S&P was number three, still doing okay. But then while the S&P has all these bad years, the Russell 2000 is kind of fighting to be in the top half. And I think you'd get a sense of what it might be like to, uh, to see these asset classes move from the top to the very bottom so quickly, and then, and then sometimes right back up there again. The other kinds of tables that you're going to get if you go to this uh, uh, Callan uh, periodic table site, um, they have a table on inflation-adjusted returns, they have a table on internationals only. Uh, they also have a table for alternative investments. They also have a table regarding hedge funds. And uh, I think those of you who take the time to look at the hedge fund table uh, will find it fascinating uh, to see the kinds of returns that the hedge funds uh, get as a group. By the way, Keep in mind, as far as uh, uh, the problem with survivorship bias, uh, the hedge funds, very few hedge funds even last a decade. 
And so when you look at those numbers, just, just keep in mind that, that the returns that you're looking at are the returns of a relatively small number of uh, funds for that whole period of time. Uh, but I think you'll see there, and there's not a lot of magic in the hedge fund industry. Their returns are much lower. And by the way, in many cases, their risk is much lower uh, as well. But uh, check out the Callan periodic tables, and uh, I think it will help to give you a, uh, it's another way to get a historical perspective of the market and to see how difficult it is to predict what's going to happen next. Uh, I want to talk also for uh, uh, for a minute um, about the um, the performance of the top 25, the largest 25 mutual funds. And I'm, in fact, I'm not so concerned about the performance. Uh, um, what I was interested in seeing is how much money in those top 25 funds are sitting in the S&P 500 or something very similar, like a, a total uh, stock market fund, which is mostly uh, S&P 500. Um, the, it's, it's well over a trillion dollars are in this fund, this asset class. And um, uh, it is also, in the case of, of Vanguard, uh, their investor share, that's the, that's the class that uh, requires a minimum investment of 3000 as opposed to the admiral shares, which require a, uh, uh, an investment of 10000 But there's $329 billion in the S&P 500. Uh, and uh, for what it's worth, uh, for the 10 years uh, ending, I think this, uh, I don't see the date right here, uh, 712, um, 712, July 12, 2017. If you looked at the return over 10 years, the uh, return is 6.8% a year. Now, if you uh, go out over a longer period of time, go out over a 15-year uh, period, uh, the return is about 8.8. Uh, 8. Uh, interestingly enough, if you wanted to make more money on the S&P 500, it's guaranteed to step. All you have to do is invest um, 10000 instead of 3000 and you would have picked up one-tenth of 1% 1 more over that period, 6.9 for for the uh, um, 10-year and and 8.9 for the 15. So just that lower, as we would expect, the lower expense leads to higher returns. Now, during that period of time, small-cap value did better in both the 10- and 15-year periods, but not by much. Uh, a little over 1% in the 15-year period and about a half of 1% over the 10-year period. Uh, you have to go back a little further to have the uh, small cap value 
pop up and do a lot better because uh, in the earliest years of the uh, of the decade of 2000 through 2009, uh, that was a period when small cap value was doing particularly well uh, compared to the S&P 500. What I thought was interesting as we looked, as I looked at the S&P 500 investor class share with 329 billion, the small cap va- uh, value fund uh, investor class as well had uh, 27 billion, so less than one tenth of what the S&P 500 has. So. Not all that many people are taking the approach that we recommend, and that is spreading equally between the very large blend and the small blend and the small value, etc. It's still, the market is still largely being driven um, by these very, very large cap funds. And as you look at the other funds that made that top 25, most of them are S&P 500 oriented. Uh, not, not totally, but mostly. And there are a couple of bond funds in this list as well. Um, I don't know that there's any other great lesson there, but I've had a lot of questions about people being concerned regarding the small cap value market uh, being so small and should that... Uh, uh, be a problem in the future. I don't think so, um, but those those are the numbers. Rebalancing. I've had lots of questions about rebalancing, and um, it's been a while since I've been in the trenches uh, having to deal with rebalancing uh, real time. So I got on the phone with uh, a fellow who who works with a lot of the, the clients that I know at, uh, at the Merriman Company. I talked to Fook Dang. Uh, Fook is uh, uh, an amazing advisor, and he's also a, a, a CPA. And I thought it would be good to talk to Fook to find out what's new in the rebalancing arena, um, particularly since the... Uh, the big item with rebalancing is going to be taxes. Now, there'll be expenses of rebalancing, but in a taxable account, the tax question is going to be a a, a bigger deal uh, than the expense of the trade, at least generally. Um, now, I have to try to make life simple for people who are rebalancing, telling people, look, just do it once a year on a on your birthday is fine some date that that you'll remember to do it uh, there are a lot of people who make it more sophisticated than that now certainly for somebody in a taxable account again the the question of taxes is is a much is a much bigger deal than with a tax deferred because there are no tax considerations generally not in a tax-deferred account. If we talked only about a tax-deferred account, then it would be easy to, to say something like either do it annually or if the portfolio gets out of balance by 10%. Let's say that you started the period uh, with your 
proper asset allocation of 60-40, but over a period of time, however long it took, it got to 70% in equities and 30% in fixed income, it would likely be time to rebalance and get back to that 60-40. Remember, if you don't, as you get older, you're going to have more and more equity in a portfolio for an aging person who should be taking theoretically less risk as time passes. So you let it get out of balance by 10%. Now you need to move uh, 10% over into fixed income uh, in order to get back to your 60-40. And uh, the obvious answer there would be to move portions of the equity portfolios that they themselves have gotten out of balance, have, have, have been responsible for going up to 70-30 instead of 60-40. Now, all of that's fairly simple. There's a difference between mutual funds and ETFs because you can move money around in, in a mutual fund family without having to pay commissions, without having to deal with the spread between the bid and ask. That makes mutual funds a better deal. And, and uh, so you have to come up with ways to do this with ETFs that might be slightly different than what you would do uh, for the uh, for the mutual funds, but you want to minimize trading more with ETFs than you do mutual funds, especially if we're talking about a taxable account. Now here's where this can get really cool, and uh, there's now software. I think any um, good size, well. Forget about good size. Any advisor uh, who's taking care of their client today is going to likely try to create an asset allocation um, that is, reflects not only the right balance of equity and fixed income and the right balance of big and small and value and growth and U.S. international but they're going to want to own those asset classes where it will be most tax efficient. Now, a lot of people would conclude that with that in mind, that you want all your bonds in the tax deferred and the stocks in the taxable. Well, there is some research that's been done that concludes that having tax-exempt bonds is a more productive in the taxable and have more equities in the tax deferred. There's a debate about that. You might ask your advisor what they believe. Now, there's also something else that is is um, relatively new. I mean, it's I don't mean that it, it's it's had to have been around for decades. But it's become a hot button item here, and that is uh, asset class location. Now, let's say that your portfolio uh, gets out of sync and you've got too much equity in the portfolio. 
And so if you, if, if you sold equity in the taxable part of your for, portfolio, that might trigger uh, a taxable event. But if you or you and your advisor look at your portfolio as one whole portfolio, then you can make changes likely in the tax-deferred part of your portfolio so that you don't have to do it in the uh, taxable part of your portfolio. Now, this is going to work better if you're using uh, the uh, tax-exempt uh, tax bond funds so that, that uh, uh, what you're going to be leaving in the taxable account is going to be more bonds as you're picking up equities inside of your uh, tax-deferred account. Now, I just know somebody out there right now is scratching their heads and, and asking, what, what is he talking about? <laughs> but you, the point is, is that different advisors could be giving different recommendations. And what is important for you to know is why they believe what they believe. Now, this even gets tricky at, at, a, at a, an emotional uh, um, position that you might have. Some advisors are a little bit shy of recommending that you end up with all of your equities in one account and all of your fixed income in another because when that account that's all equities takes a nosedive uh, in terms of, uh, of, of the equity values in a, in a bear market going down 20, 30, 40%, having that happen to one account can be really emotional and upsetting to an investor. Whereas if that account had a combination of fixed income and equity, and instead of going down 50%, it went down uh, 25%, maybe it would be more acceptable. Now, if you're looking at your portfolio's value as one total portfolio, then you're not as likely to be trapped by that kind of panicky feeling that you get when some portion of your portfolio specifically is, is falling apart. So rebalancing once a year is fine, but there are now more efficient ways to do that, uh, taking into consideration the cost of transactions. And by the way, the cost of transactions are coming down as well. But the cost of transactions, the spreads between the bid and ask, uh, and the taxable uh, implications uh, of uh, where that you make changes in the portfolio. Oh, and again, to make the decision, do you do it once a year or do you wait until the portfolio gets out of sync by 10% in that equity fixed income balance or maybe 15%? Uh, you probably... Most people wouldn't, if they're in retirement, want to let it get any more out of balance than that. But that's a decision that you need uh, to make. And I think it would be great if you work that out with an advisor. Remember when I say work it out with an advisor, it, 
It may be that that advisor is an hourly advisor. I've mentioned Garrett Planning Network many times, and to find an advisor who who the recommendations make sense to you, that they take into consideration taxes, that they can take into consideration expenses and all those things that can take a whack uh, out of what you have left at the end of a year, uh, if you can find somebody that will give you that advice who's on an hourly basis, maybe they look at your portfolio once a year to see if there's something that should be done and what it should be. Now I want to talk for a minute about the Motif Project. Uh, as I've mentioned recently, uh, there uh, is uh, um, uh, there, we're working on these Motif portfolios for target date portfolios, or we can call them target date funds but it's using a number of different funds to create a target date portfolio. When when we talk about those, uh, we're, we're going to, at that time, uh, ad- address uh, a lot of the challenges of motif. And uh, hopefully we'll have, at that point, uh, an, an up-to-date understanding of what motif will and won't do. But the reality is uh, that probably the group of people who are going to be most appropriately using Motif and not having to struggle with some of the shortfalls of Motifs uh, are going to be people doing um, something like a target date portfolio or one of the portfolios that's a, a balance between equities and fixed income but doing it inside of an IRA. Uh, There are, as I'm sure many of you who have gone to Motif, you know that, number one, they they do not have an automatic dividend reinvestment program that's free. They do not have tax loss harvesting that is automated. And, um, and in fact, um, you cannot auto-invest into one of the community motifs. You, you can do that with one of their motifs, but if you're going to deal with a motif like we have and others have created, then they don't have an auto-invest. Um, that, all of that's a, a challenge. And so the question is, how will somebody set up an account in it with an IRA so that they are getting the dividends efficiently reinvested uh, so that they are even dollar cost averaging in on some uh, low cost basis, not completely free. Motif isn't completely free, but it can be, if done right, very, very low cost. And I ask your patience. I want to. I want to tackle this when we have those uh, target date portfolios up and running. We will devote an entire podcast to that because for those of you who are not interested in Motif, 
by the way, we're hoping that some of you will likely even use, even though you won't invest with Motif, you might likely create your own target date portfolio and use our recommendations. And that's fine, too. We, we don't care that you do it at Motif. So that's all coming, and uh, uh, it, it seems like summertime is supposed to be a time of, of vacation and having a great time. I've had a little bit of that, but uh, we got so many things going on around here right now uh, with our foundation that this summer hasn't been quite as much fun, but I can tell you that I'm having a ball continuing to do this work here in the hopes that we will be helping others. And, uh, and oh, by the way, uh, just an update on that, that project up at Western where, where we're doing the 20-plus uh, uh, videos. Uh, they have slid that a month and I will be, they've asked me if we can't do it the last part of August. And, uh, I mean, what can I say? <laughs> I'm doing it with them. So I'm going to do it the last part of August instead of the last part of, uh, of, of July. As always, thanks for listening. And we'll be talking to you soon. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.